Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And you heard right, folks. Connor's got a new mic. Hello, hello. Are you listening to my dulcet tone? I am, and I am loving it. And uh, I feel good. A little pop filter. Yeah, I think it's sounding very good. Um, quickly, we mentioned in the last episode, obviously, that we know from our downloads that we've got tons of new listeners, but weren't seeing a ton of new reviews. And I uh, perhaps offhandedly said, you could even just write, this is good. Well, Absolute <laughs> Legend 3 Victoria 6 gave a five-star rating and in the review said, this is good, period. And you know what? Nothing, I don't think could have made me happier. Um, so if you are new to the pod, it would be absolutely wonderful if you hopped on over. I think almost every platform from Apple Podcasts to Spotify uh, lets you do this, but leave a little rating and review. Maybe this time, tell Connor how good you think he sounds on his new microphone. If you think I sound good. If you don't, if- five stars and tell us how bad he sounds. <laughs> yeah that could work i won't love that as much but you know yeah. that's that's fair i'll do it for but, the stars yeah if it doesn't sound good make sure it's make it about the microphone and not like connor's voice or the things that he says because his voice is lovely and the things he says are smart so you know let's uh let's as um the socks that i bought during a particularly tough family time say i'm a delicate fucking flower that that is on a pair of socks that I have, and they're very beautiful. Um, Good. So it, it is it is true. But thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Three Victoria Six. It meant a lot. But either way, five stars in review really helps out the show because of algorithms and the internet and whatever. Um, but we're not here to talk about all that boring stuff. And I don't understand how technology works. We are here to talk about poetry. Something. I know more about than technology, but less about than Connor does. So today we yeah. are here to talk about. Uh, pretty good. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, uh, you were trying to change the subject and now I'm bringing us back on the subject. 
you know a lot more about sound devices than I do. I'll say that. Um, yeah, Connor covers the literary devices. I cover the audio devices, and here we are. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. Today we are talking about the poem "Dreams" by Nikki Giovanni, who is an absolute legend. Um, in some cases, you could say quite literally, because she was one of Oprah Winfrey's 25 living legends uh, of Black women in arts and entertainment. Um, to give you an idea of the company that put her in, it's like Maya Angelou, Tina Turner, Diana Ross, Aretha Franklin, um, Cecily Tyson, like that echelon of folks. And that was uh, about 15 years ago. So the legend has only grown in the intervening time. Um, Nikki Giovanni got her start in the late 60s, 1968, I believe is when her first collection came out and was uh, really um, like immersed in the world of the Black Arts Movement and the Black Power Movement and did not only a bunch of writing, but also a lot of organizing and particularly like media organizing, producing in addition to activism work and in addition to writing. So there was a TV series in the early 70s called Soul! Exclamation point, which has been discussed a bit on our sister podcast, Poetry Spoken Here. But it was a show that featured basically like Black luminaries of the time. And Nikki Giovanni was part of the group that was sort of producing and putting out the show. She was regularly on it, either doing interviews or as part of like little panels that were on the show. Um, there's a particularly uh, striking, I believe it's two episodes, but you can find it as one video on YouTube uh, where she sits down with James Baldwin for like a really long form discussion. As with almost anything to do with James Baldwin uh, or really like Black history in the United States. If you go back to the 70s, you'll find really thoughtful people talking about all of the stuff that's still a problem now in really insightful ways. So it's a really, that's an amazing kind of listen and soul as a kind of cultural artifact that features all of the people who were really a big deal at the time, uh, whose names have only kind of grown in stature since then, is, is really like a great resource to revisit. And she was a big part of, of putting that together as well. Um, and then, you know, went on to continue a 50 year career of really incredible uh, writing and teaching. Yeah, she's still publishing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Dreams, I think is from maybe her very first collection. Um, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. From 1968. And it's one of her poems, like a lot of her poems as well, like she's very, very widely anthologized. So in addition to continuing to produce new writing, uh, a lot of her works end up in various anthologies. And I believe Dreams is one of those poems that's that's made it into a few because it's maybe not her very best known work, but it's one of her her more well-known and more iconic poems. Let's read it. All right. Dreams by Nikki Giovanni. In my younger years, before I learned Black people aren't supposed to dream, I wanted to be a Raylette and say, drown in my own tears, or talking about, talking about, or Marjorie Hendricks and grind all up against the mic and scream, 
baby night and day baby night and day then as i grew and matured i became more sensible and decided i would settle down and just become a sweet inspiration apologies for the singing that is uh not as good as the ray Letts, or indeed if you listen to nikki giovanni read this uh not as good as her so you know we'll talk you did your best it. jack you did i your did best. my i did i did my <laughs> well we'll talk about it um <laughs> so as usual we we begin these conversations that can sometimes stray uh with a a bit of a narrative rundown of the poem itself so connor what's uh what's happened in this poem what's the narrative here yeah well it's it's um in a narrative sense, it's pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, the, the speaker um, could be a younger Nikki Giovanni um, talking about what dreams the speaker had. Uh, younger wanted to be a Raylette, um, which is the, the kind of the girl group of backup singers to Ray Charles. Um, and uh, or uh, Marjorie Hendricks, also another wonderful singer. Um, and yeah, and then um, the speakers like, then I grew up um, and I feel like the end sort of ends with a little bit of a wink or some kind of thing. It's like, no, I'm a mature person now. I'll just settle down and become a sweet inspiration. So yeah, it's kind of like it, the, it sort of tracks the development of the speaker's dreams. Definitely. And yeah, you, as you noted, the Ray Letts were Ray Charles's backing singers who are obviously an incredibly important part of most of his iconic recordings. And Marjorie Hendricks was one of the original Ray Letts and kind of like a lead backup singer, if you will, uh, of the group and went on to have a somewhat tragic, uh, like failed solo career, troubles with with drugs and died fairly young i don't know how much of that to read into what this poem is talking about she would have been alive when this poem was written yeah there are quotes from a few different ray charles songs in this drowned in my own tears is from the song drowned in my own tears <laughs> and i guess The talking about talking about is from the song talking about you. And night and day is from night and day, which is maybe best known for the opening lines of nighttime is the right time to be with the one you love. night and day the title of the song is those are the lines that are sung by the Raylettes throughout and then there's kind of a moment in it where Marjorie Hendrix gets this kind of solo backup moment uh, that's like one of the most iconic parts of the song where she really lays into the word baby and yeah. it's uh, it's incredible
It really is. I yeah, I was listening to those songs again before our recording, and yeah, when she sings "Baby," it's it's amazing. It's a it's big. It's a big moment. It's so good. Um, to get when, a to get a feel of her vocal power on her own, she has a song called um, I think it's called "A Lover's Blues," and it's like that moment, but a whole song. so good so i i don't know i'm sort of curious about the idea of the raylets and and backup singers and all that kind of stuff but also the maybe first we should talk about the like this idea that the speaker grew and matured beyond wanting that and what that means um because i think talking about literal you know maturity or maybe not literal maturity, but like talking about maturing and like individual psychological growth, there's also uh, like the turn from just being young and dreaming about stuff into like an adult world of responsibilities and perhaps restrictions that are out of your control. And there's obviously the big uh, kind of, um signpost to that with before i learned black people aren't supposed to dream it comes back much more gently at the end because it it doesn't sound like you know the speaker is necessarily too perturbed about maturing and becoming you know i became more sensible and decided there's ownership and agency but of what do you make of that kind of turn moment that comes after you know night and day which is also this like explosive singing moment in the actual song into this more reserved, matured, sensible. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like like the most general way it's like, well, first I'm thinking about like kids wanting to be like, you know, yeah, stars and like pop stars, music stars. Um, and like, I was, uh, I think Nighttime came out in like 58 or something. It's like, so it's both kind of like young celebrity. It's like sexy stuff. Um, it's, it's also like, it's a, it's also, it's both that the celebrity, but then it's also like the passion and the desire um, and the, the feeling and the kind of like letting oneself be like totally consumed by those things, which is like such a classic young person thing. <laughs> and we should probably mention like Nikki Giovanni was born in 1943. So mm -hmm. like kind of 15, 16 ish around the time that like Ray Charles is reaching his, his pinnacle. Yeah. Um, yeah. And having these like huge, obviously remained a massive star for the rest of his life. But, you know, this is like, oh my God, this is new. And these are the songs of the moment. Um, exactly. Kind of time. Um, yeah. So yeah, like 
2015-ish. But no, you're right. And it also has that kind of, I don't know, there's this idea of like a lot of allure to it, you know, or Marjorie Hendricks and grind all up against the mic and scream, you know, this, it's both being totally consumed by it, but it's also just like such an attractive vision of life. <laughs> right? Yeah, or yeah. Like, what else would you want? Like, it's so powerful and here's somebody who's so talented and they're on stage and everybody's losing their minds for them yeah 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 and in terms of also just like you know like black representation in in the media and pop culture and things like that like you know ray charles the raylettes were like pretty huge in that way um and you know it was yeah, the, the the media landscape in the in the fifties, you know, was nothing like what it is now in terms of, um, you know, racial diversity or inclusivity or things like that. And so, um, so it is also, especially given the way that the poem begins in my younger years, before I learned black people aren't supposed to dream, like celebrity stars in the media often represent the kind of aspirational ideas or like you know possibilities for people like when i grew up i can be like be like mike or whatever um yeah and and so to have them as such a like powerful place in american music it's like also like oh as a you know young black girl the speaker is like, I can be like them. Well, I think, yeah. And there were quite a few examples of that at the time, because with early rock and roll, there were more black artists who were crossing over and finding white audiences. And so there is this level of like general popular culture, not really acceptance because there were plenty of, you know, parents that wouldn't let their kids listen to black artists if they knew they were black. And there's all these segregated tours that took place and segregated venues for integrated tours and all that. I mean, it's, it's bad. It's the United States in the fifties and sixties. Like it's not great. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you have musicians like Bo Diddley and in his band, he had Peggy Jones, who was not only part of the like group of backup singers who would go hey Bo Diddley um <laughs> I love which, that which they did a lot uh in, <laughs> in songs such as hey Bo Diddley <laughs> um but she was also a rhythm guitarist in the group so he they like she and he are playing the same model of guitar but there she is doing that as well uh and she was so beloved that when she actually left his group he hired another woman to be the rhythm guitarist because everybody was like, where's Peggy? Where's Peggy Jones? Where's, she was also called Lady Bo. So they're like, where's Lady Bo? And he's like, uh, here's Norma Jean Wofford. It's like, you know, <laughs> um, it's another thing that's kind of going on at the same time. And there were obviously, um, you know, black women who came along as solo artists, but I think like the more common cultural image was male stars with backup women singers, which became, you know, really prevalent throughout the 60s and 70s as rock and roll became an increasingly white genre, there still were like a set of black backup singers. Um, basically, you see new versions of this kind of uh, like Marjorie Hendricks role where like the Rolling Stones record Gimme Shelter and they call in 
Mary Clayton. And then because the stones stick around for so long, they also have Lisa Fisher who comes in and sings that part. And now I don't know the name of the woman who currently tours with them, but they have another person who does that. And like, there was the documentary 20 feet from stardom a little while ago that kind of gets at that question of like, what's up with, with backup singers. Uh, Cause I think there's also like a, a rock and roll kind of rock and roll trope, but sort of just a, a musical trope also of like bringing in a choir uh, and not just any choir, but like a black choir. And you see that sometimes at like the Kennedy center honors, like all of a sudden on the last song, an entire choir <laughs> yeah. will emerge. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I feel like this is a part of the poem that has grown so much over time because mm. at the time that it was written, obviously it's still like 10 ish years removed from when these songs were coming out, but so much about what that Marjorie Hendricks role or what the Raylette role means has grown in the cultural consciousness and has perpetuated for so long, possibly longer than people thinking about it in 1968 would have anticipated it kind of stagnating and, you know, groups touring in 2010 with three black women as their backup singers and it's a white artist. So I think, yeah, that the, the part about like, I want to be, I wanted to be a Raylette that feels like that line is one that has been kind of loaded up even more over the intervening 50 plus years since the poem originally came out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, that documentary is really good. I remember, um, I mean, you know, more, much more about rock and roll history. So, and, and I know a lot less. So there was a lot that I was getting from it. That was probably, um nothing new to you but um no it was it was very it's a very fascinating look at the kind of um yeah way that rock and roll became white and sort of used and exploited black singers and black the appeal of black culture um in sonic form uh to to capitalize on that um which yeah it's 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 also interesting to to see it as a, a like a moment in time uh like of black like cultural creations in America like and then you know after that you get hip-hop and like which in some ways like has resisted the like there's a few white rappers but like whatever like, Eminem do you mean <laughs> yeah well and yeah and and I mean yeah I mean the ones now you get like Post Malone and like Machine Gun Kelly and Macklemore, um, Mac, God, Mac, Macklemore, Macklemore. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it's but it's still it's still become like it didn't still... it, it never transformed into like a white genre. There's a great book which I know I brought up before, just around midnight, rock and roll and the racial imagination, which is basically about how everything about rock and roll kind of became very white throughout the 1960s pretty much like it obviously expands beyond that but that decade as a as a transition point and particularly then into the 70s why did rock become so white um because many 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 like the majority of the early rock and roll artists who were the real innovators were black 
Yeah, yeah. One thing I do think is interesting, um, and that sort of comes across because you're singing lines from songs, but the way that the uh, the lines from the songs are represented in the poem is uh, like trying to phonetically represent what's happening. And so there's, you know, spacing that doesn't follow the words, it follows the sounds. So you get DR space O space WN space D in my YOUN tears to indicate the rhythms of the of the song, which I think is really interesting because obviously you can't necessarily assume that your audience is familiar with these songs at, in 1968, it was probably more likely than it is now. Um, but I think especially where uh, baby night and day, baby has five A's and then night and day is written as one word. Like if you're even a little bit familiar with the song, I think you instantly hear it. Like I was imagining how would I try and do it not necessarily with these songs but just with like any song would i try to do it or would i just quote the line because what is being written out phonetically is like what the raylets are singing because it doesn't have the intonation of like a lead vocal part would be the words usually even if they're augmented in some way or you're holding one note it's still like the message of the song and it's presented that way here the words are broken down so that many of them are not actually words and a lot of times what backup singers are providing is this like rhythmic repeated melody with words that you obviously you can hear them and understand like it's clear that the that like they're singing night and day but it's more about delivering that rhythmically and i'm sort of curious how you feel that i don't know how that hits in the poem because it is kind of the the meat of the poem like that big middle part from and say drowned in my own tears through the repeated night and day is like a solid what maybe somewhere between a third and half of the poem yeah uh and that's like a big thing to have going on in the middle of your poem it's very noticeable it's probably the the thing that sticks out the most just on the page in the poem because your eyes are drawn to this and you're going wait a minute y-o-u-n <laughs> hold on wait where are the spaces in night and day um I don't know, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I love how she does it in the poem. Um, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's interesting what you say about how the, also the parts being the the backup singers and the, the kind of rhythm section is is very, yeah, it's very interesting and it it's not, yeah like uh, I mean it's basically what you've said but it's like not about the words it's it is about the sounds and the rhythms um and like the singingness of it like I yeah sometimes I I think about this is like a really random idea that I've tossed around in my head I've always been interested in singing how like like a song lyric has like three kind of elements in a way, which is like, I mean, it has many, but it has like the word, right? So it's, it, you know, drowned. Then there's like the meaning of the word and that's like a thing. Then it has like the note or whatever, like it's a G flat or whatever. Um, and then it has the voice. Um, 
and the voice is like its own thing. And to me, there's lots of interesting, and this happens like not, it's, it's like in all kinds of songs where different parts are kind of like, like normally the voice is not, you like, you're like, wow, they've got a great voice. But like you, you hear the notes and the words, like mainly a lot of the times, but then like, you know, when you get recordings or songs that are like really breathy, it's a it's a Western philosopher scientist brain, like in a bad way, which is just like these things are all distinct in this way. And it's like I'm separating out like you hear a song and you're like, wow, what a great voice. And I'm like, let me tell you the three elements of a song's voice. There is the <laughs> voice. There is the note. There is the word. The word has a meaning and a sound that's where i'm going and i am always going in that way okay so um <laughs> i think that's also like you are also somebody who actually like plays a musical instrument and has been a part of musical groups and ensembles of various types and i think it's a little bit like uh watching a movie as somebody who's never made a movie versus having made a movie like you know something about how it ticks right and right. so like for me, when I listen to music, not always, but if my certain parts of my music brain are, are on, or if I'm thinking about it critically, I can separate out parts of like a production or a performance mm. and really think about the component parts of the arrangement or something or like, oh yeah, they added a cowbell there. I literally thought of this. I was listening to music while I was doing chores this morning and there's a really noticeable moment in a song where there's been no cowbell through the whole song and then there's cowbell for a little bit and it adds energy midway through the song like thinking about all of that stuff that happens and i think that's also true for you know analyzing when somebody is singing are they hitting the note is it like a technically accomplished performance that doesn't have any of the meaning of the word preserved in it that's a very good point. Yeah, when you're when you're trying to learn how to do something, you have to it's like okay, first step of a saxophone playing like get the note, make the note happen. <laughs> but then it's like it's got to not sound like total utter bat shit garbage. So you're like, okay, I need <laughs> Figure to get out the, the next note that sounds okay or yeah, the next how note, can you but, play the note in a way that sounds better? Yeah, like get the tone right, get your and then you're like, okay, I have to think about my embouchure and then I'm like I have to think about my my mouth muscles in a weird way. Um and so no, that is a, that's a very good point. Um but yeah, like to me, something I've been thinking about in music is like there's these three things where you have like you have the lyric like as a word like it's saying something you have the lyric as a, a note like they're singing like a g flat or whatever um and then you have the voice like you have the thing that's making the sound but most of the time in in sung things most of what you pay attention to is like the words and then the notes um and i always think it's like but there's a thing that I've noticed in, and this is like not, this is just like in normal, like regular pop songs. So the, the examples that I have are like very random. Um, but like, to me, there's a moment with singing where 
the singer often emphasizes they like move into more so that you notice the voice and i feel like it creates us like a kind of it's like a longing thing or like a it gets very a, it's like for an emotional it has like an emotional effect that i think happens whether or not you notice it all so like um this is <laughs> my first example uh is that from the song Split Stones by Maggie Rogers, who is an all-time legend. I can see us um, okay, so then my other example is King Princess Talia, which was like, I think like her second big hit. So basically like, this is a similar example, but like it's, um, so like in the kind of the breakdown part of the song, like after the chorus a couple times and stuff, she she just gets she has this moment of of like breathiness where it's like she's hitting the notes, she's saying the thing that she's been saying, but it's like you hear a lot of breath and like you hear a lot of like the like the physical parts of <laughs> the human that make the human sounds you know what i mean if i drink enough, i can see you dancing i can lay down next to you and it's also a part where where the song itself gets very pared down like it's like it's like almost just her singing a cappella not quite but it's like a lot more pared down um and i feel like it's a similar they, they have similar purposes where it's like it goes to the voice for this like reason of it's like very it just feels like it's the most emotional and like longing part where it's also like the least production you know in, in a way it's like breaking the fourth wall of a song kind of where it's like oh i'm just a person i'm not, i just don't have like perfect pipes all the time but then there's something vulnerable about the breathiness in that way too i think and there's like the most extreme versions where it's just like people like literally there's like a like actually breaking the fourth wall in a song where they're like, oh, I think that was a good cut or something. They'll just like say that at the end of the song. They're always British. Um, oh, my God. Or... There's a moment at the end of uh, <laughs> the version of Dead Flowers that's on the Rolling Stones album Stripped. That's from a performance. And Mick Jagger goes, I felt like a hillbilly for a minute there. <laughs> just a minute now and it's like it's one of the iconic moments of my childhood hearing that over and over again oh my god that's funny album. there's um this is my equivalent which is a much lower uh it's a much lamer reference but it is in terms of our youth there's a counting crows song uh where it's like an extended cut. Ooh, I was a little too hot to handle, wasn't I? <laughs> no, they're just like all chatting. I think it's, ah, I forget. But then someone's just like, thanks for the weed, man. Thanks for the weed. <laughs> yeah. An another great, and this is a different kind of thing because it's a live performance, but the, the song, which is just one of the best songs of all time, uh, Mercy, mercy, mercy. Um, Cannonball Adderley. He's like right before the recording. You know they're at the thing, and 
he has got and he has just the best voice but he's just like sometimes we're not prepared for adversity when it happens sometimes we're caught short we don't know exactly how to handle it when it comes up sometimes we don't know just what to do when adversity takes over <laughs> and uh, i have advice for all of us i got it from our pianist joe zabinu who wrote this tune and it sounds like what you're supposed to say when you have that kind of problem it's and it's called, called mercy. mercy 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 and then the song goes like bum, 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 bum. and it's it's just amazing but he's just you know he's the 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 band leader talking about it and stuff and it's not the actual song song um but i just was i i was just thinking about that because then i was like it was just interesting and then this is another random thing but for some reason this is the song that <laughs> i had this started having this idea with um and you know he's a troubled man and we don't need to get into all that but there's a song on uh life of pablo when he's like i just want to feel liberated um um (laughs) to me i was like whoa um there's like a version of my life where i would try to write a very long think piece for pitchfork about this but um thankfully i'm not in that timeline uh because that would be bad for everyone involved but i think it that moment it's like an ex it's like okay for a the words are interesting like i just want to be liberated it's like this kind of yearning to be free to be liberated and it's like kind of wrapped, but then it's kind of sung, but then it turns into this mumble, right? It's like liberated on. And to me, it's like, it's a moment of like the voice part coming out in a way that's not, it has, it's for a totally different reason, but it's where like, um, it's somewhat similar to like the breathy singing where you like, you notice it's like, oh, he's mumbling. Like he's just like a person with a voice who's like running out of things to say, Uh, which like obviously Kanye has run out of things to say many times over, but um, he's still saying some things. Um, But it's interesting in that, like the way that the voice emerges as a mumble it like says something also about the I want to be liberated statement in a way where you're like, like he's kind of exhausted and like kind of just like out of his gourd and like doesn't know. I don't know. Anyway, it's just, it made me think all of this is somewhat (laughs) related to the poem when you were talking about the ways that Nikki Giovanni is spelling out the lyrics in a way that's like phonetic and not about the actual lyrics and and talking about also it being the backup singers and being the kind of rhythm section. 
Um, because to me, it is sort of about the feeling in a way, which I like is kind of obvious, I guess. But to me, like the the moments that I was bringing up in those random songs are like moments when the 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 human feeling, which like in the the pop songs is more just like the kind of longing or desire or vulnerability of what's being talked about kind of and in the Kanye it's a more like it's almost like an existential ennui like kind of like fatigue about being trapped I don't know uh but then it's like also in this like banger of a track uh that's like the guy's just saying panda the sample is just he's just saying panda all the time um anyway and it's like the speaker in dreams, her dreams are to be a roulette. And like, it's to, it's not just to be a roulette to like be on the stage or like to look like how the roulettes looked like, or, you know, that kind of thing. It's like to sing, it's like to sing in that way, in a way that's emphasizing those feelings. Like, and especially, and then the Marjorie Hendricks, like grinding all up against the mic and screaming baby night and day. And like, when she sings it, it's like, like when she sings baby, it's like, God damn, like it's fucked up. Um, and yeah, like, it's so good. And it's, it's like, like yeah. I think it's, um, it's like the other side of some of those examples that you gave, um, like the King princess example or, um, the Maggie Rogers where it's like this breathiness it's like the opposite end of the singing spectrum because she's really belting it out and it's raspy and it's raw mm -hmm. and it's baby. And what I think is interesting is, yeah, the way it's written out emphasizes the sounds over the words. And with the backup singing, it is about the rhythm, but it's not not about the words because they could be going ba da da. Right. Ooh la la. Ba, da, da. <laughs> but no, it's night and day. Mm hmm night and day so it's not about the words but it is about the words but you're so right it's these moments that interject particularly the baby moment where it's like whoa that's a voice mm -hmm. you know yeah. like it, it is about the word baby but it's also about the voice delivering it yeah um yeah it's the moment of most embodied expression of desire it's like i want to be the desiring body does like saying I desire in a way yeah. like by and by putting it in the poem in that way with emphasizing the ways that it's saying in the rhythms that it's saying feels like it's it's pointing to that part of it more than anything else totally my maybe my favorite moment in recorded music I think is one of these um and it features a singer I mentioned earlier, Mary Clayton, um, who's in the 20 Feet from Stardom documentary, who sings the counterpoint, the like co-lead vocals kind of on Gimme Shelter. And on one, one of the times that she says the word, she sings the word murder, she pops her voice up an octave. And she describes it in the documentary and she's basically like, yeah, I just decided to blow their minds and, and do it. 
Um, and there's like a whole mythology about they got her to come into the studio in the middle of the night and maybe she had a miscarriage because she sang so hard in this track. Like it's a whole mythologized thing. But there's this moment where her voice goes up the octave and you can hear Mick Jagger go, ooh, in the background <laughs> or somebody. Mm. I think it's Mick Jagger. But you hear, you know, she goes, murder. And yeah. woo is the answer to it. Uh. And that little moment of... Uh, like when we hear those things, like a voice doing that, we often talk about it being piercing, um, which has kind of a negative connotation for what it's actually doing. But like when the word is murder and <laughs> yeah. the voice is embodying just like so much of the word and it's taking the song to another place and it's so strong that another voice answers it in, like instinctually. It's just this brilliant little moment that happens and it does get at kind of exactly what this is talking about in terms of where are those moments where that voice does fully embody you know the yearning or the message of something outside of the actual word itself where is the voice the thing that's delivering it beyond just the word and it's um, it's so singular like they don't try to replicate it in concert they have there's an amazing performance from the early 90s where lisa fisher they have her go off on basically like a vocal solo in place of that moment. Like she gets to come out. But it's like a different thing because that moment is such a unique thing that it's like kind of impossible to recreate in the in the live environment. So there has to be a different way of doing it. And the only way to replicate it live is to go beyond words, basically. Yeah. So then all of that makes, I think, which is kind of your very first question that I don't think I ever <laughs> answered. Uh, maybe now we can get there. The The turn you know, after the baby night and day part, then as I grew and matured, I became more sensible and decided I would settle down and just become a sweet inspiration. The thing that I'm noticing after what we've just talked about is like the language then shifts. It becomes, because in the same way that songs have singing has its own sort of many dimensions and textures and all that kind of thing and 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 singers who are skilled can you know they don't just hit the notes they're they're uh manipulating all those textures to create the effects like poems you know don't have the notes but they have the different you know feelings of words and connotations and um you know, and there's like, uh, like, as an example, in the beginning, like, um, in my younger years, before I learned black people aren't supposed to dream, though, the supposed is, there's no D. And that's, you know, it's like, a kind of, uh, like replicating a sort of vernacular, like black vernacular of, of saying supposed. Um, and, and doing that, like dropping the D, gives the poem the more spoken quality right 
um, and and it's it's leaning towards the spokenness, even though it's written down. And like in the more, and then it keeps sort of going in that direction by by um, like emphasizing the rhythmic parts of the lyrics and stuff like that. But then like this part, then as I grew and matured, I became more sensible and decided I would settle down and just become a sweet inspiration, like matured, sensible, decided, settle down. These are all like, um, you know, sensible. It's like a written, it's, it's, it feels more written and more, um, obviously it's more mature, uh, but it's like, it's, the language is, is moving in a different connotative feeling direction there. That's kind of both kind of just like uh, imitating the, the growth that's being described, right. That maturation um, in a kind of knowing way. Right. Because then the, the kind of the joke at the end, which is also just, it's not a joke per se, but it's, it's funny, but it's also amazing is like, and just become the just being like, this is all I'm going to become is a sweet inspiration. Like it's an amazing <laughs> thing to be, to be a sweet inspiration. Um, but it, but it's like the turn, the turn is, is happening both in the, the, you know, the meanings of the words, like then as I grew and matured, I made a different choice. Like the, the, the meanings are turning there, but also the language itself is turning into an, uh, a less spoken, more written, um, less uh, informal, more formal, um, you know, more mature or whatever, less feeling is like full of feeling, you know, sensible a less quote unquote passionate direction that it, that the poem had been in both in feeling and meaning for, for, you know, much of the poem. Um, so yeah, just like us talking about that made me really tune into the, sh the, then the tonal shift that happens with, with the language choices. For sure. And it sort of opens in that more reflective mode as well. In my younger years, Mm -hmm. um, it sort right. of feels like uh, appropriators par excellence Led Zeppelin, uh, their first album, the first song <laughs> on it, which would come out about it, you know, the, like January of 69, you know, in the days of my youth, I was told what it means to be a man. they're singing that when they're like 19 years old but uh <laughs> you know nikki giovanni's not that much older like this is somebody who's in their 20s writing this which right you know, is still removed enough to be reflective about your mid-teenage years um but i think Let's, there's all yeah. there's like an audacity of youth to think that you've got this much figured out as well yeah. you know like i feel like this is a very sort of you know, Bruce Springsteen at 25 writing, we're thinking that maybe we ain't that young anymore. It's like, all right, okay, you're not 17. <laughs> like, calm down. Um, very much. This feels like a young person reflecting on youth kind of thing, like exactly. to be this knowing, um, yeah. which is like, yeah. And you can almost feel the wink at the end in that, you know, just become a sweet inspiration. I think, especially if you hear Nikki Giovanni read it, as you're saying, it's not maybe a full joke, but like it's knowing. Yeah it's like incredibly knowing and you feel that 
yeah no i was struck by how it feels like i don't know the the image i have associated with this poem is almost like a u-shape where it sort of starts off very reserved and high up and then it kind of dives into this world of you know desire and and wild dreams and ideas and then it kind of returns to this higher plane of like but then i grew up and i moved on from those heady <laughs> childhood days and now i'll just be a sweet inspiration you know? yeah yeah um and i i think that's very very fun and you can sort of feel that movement through the poem like that feels where it kind of almost like a roller coaster like you dive into this world of the raylets and then you kind of slow down as you come back out of it you know Mm-hmm. You kind of you start slow and then it's like boom now you're singing and you're and you're marjorie hendrix and like whoa and then you're kind of coming back out the other end of like oh yes that was quite a tempestuous bunch of <laughs> yeah. hormonal teenage years i had wasn't it uh, <laughs> but here we exactly. are exactly you know uh, yeah but it's very fun and who it wouldn't want to be able to scream like marjorie hendrix oh yeah yeah well and then i love too that it that that the speaker wants to be an inspiration, like it's, you know, become someone that others dream of becoming, you know, is like the, yeah. the to be an inspiration. Um, and to like do it in your own way, to not be, you know, somebody else again, they already were them. They did that. And yeah. it's great that you were inspired to be them, but you kind of have to be you it's there's an interview with a young Serena Williams. I think this shows up in King Richard. They recreate it, but it's like a real interview that happened where this guy asks Serena Williams who she wants to play like. And her answer is, I want other people to want to play like me. If you were a tennis player, who would you want to be like? Well, I like other people to be like me. <laughs> That's a good answer. And she's like 10 or something. It's, it's oh incredible. God. Like it's, it is just the perfect answer for somebody who redefined the way that tennis was being played. It's so amazing. But like, yeah, I think it is a little bit of that where by the end, like I want to be an inspiration. I want to be my own sweet inspiration. It also reminds me of, and I don't know how intentional, it's one of those things where it's like this illusion. It's like, almost too easy to connect so I don't want to do it but then it's there um but like the Langston Hughes what happens to a dream deferred um and I was thinking you know because that that's a it's a very short poem but it's like you know does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode um and i was thinking about especially when the poem is ending with becoming a sweet inspiration um and then i was hearing that other echo to the you know a a dream deferred becoming crusting over and sugaring over like a syrupy sweet um you know, this called dreams and, and it, and it has a similar in terms of, you know, like the, this poem before I learned black people aren't supposed to dream and like, you know, Langston Hughes, it's, it's like in the Harlem Renaissance, a dream deferred. That's like the, 
you know, it's like iconically uh, Black American experience of a perpetual deferring of a kind of liberation dream. Um, and and I'm I'm just I don't know. I I was wondering if if there's some kind of if this is a a, a kind of Giovanni's kind of loving response to Langston Hughes, but I'm not not totally sure. But um, I don't know. Anyway. But you're you're very right about the resonances that are there. Um, it's really interesting that you pulled that out because I also had a piece that felt like it was in some way in conversation, but moving forward, like it was being potentially inspired by or in conversation with this. I was thinking about um, Denez Smith's Dinosaurs in the Hood, mm. which ends on like a dreaming moment and having a new kind of dream at the end of it. Um, like the whole poem kind of is about like imagination uh, and, and imaginary, but it ends specifically on a dream. Uh, and so I was, you know, thinking kind of along those lines, but in the like forward direction as opposed to reaching backward. Yeah. Um, oh, no, that's really. And I think there are ways that all three of these poems feel like they're talking to each other, whether it's the explicit authorial intention or if it's just that they have these thematic resonances. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's really good. Should we read it again? Let's read it again. Dreams by Nikki Giovanni. In my younger years, before I learned Black people aren't supposed to dream, I wanted to be a Raylette and say, drown in my own tears, or talking about, talking about, or Marjorie Hendricks and grind all up against the mic and scream, baby night and day baby night and day then as i grew and matured i became more sensible and decided i would settle down and just become a sweet inspiration So Connor, <laughs> so Jack, uh, anything, anything you would recommend for for reading, for watching, for listening? What have you been, what have you been taking in? What's going on? Mm. It's been pretty tough, uh, having finished all of Criminal Minds. Um, I did start re-watching that with my family because they hadn't seen it because then you forget like you know it's 15 seasons it's like and they look so different and then the show has changed like I mean it's like the same show but then it's like they're figuring out like they do all these you know and this is like 2005 ish but they have these moments where they're like a mat trying to get in the head of the killer and they're like at the crime scene or they're at the they're in their office, but they're like, what, you know, why did he leave the, you know, the knife right, like by her neck or something after he killed her, like da, da, da. And then the, the shot like goes to, they're like talking in their office, but it like go, you know, behind them, it's like maybe like a blue screen or something. They just like 
enter and like start walking kind of walking around the area that they're imagining but it's like it's like 2000s it's like pretty low production quality and it's uh it's just gold they they stopped doing that pretty soon um but it's just (laughs) it was probably i bet the the hilarious part is that in addition to not looking very good it was probably extremely expensive (laughs) yeah i'm sure i'm sure it was yeah 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 tv cg in the early aughts like yeah oh boy yeah um yeah and another i mean the hilarious thing that they keep doing uh throughout is the crazy quotes that they have from the famous Kierkegaards and uh Euripideses of the world um but the in the there's a one really early episode like the first or second when they haven't like figured out the format and they literally have one like every 10 minutes just as like like every ad break yeah basically every ad break uh Mandy uh Patinkin's just like Euripides said and it's like oh my god two is too much you're doing six right now that's crazy dude um anyway i'm not re-recommending criminal minds basically after that and mourning the loss of new criminal minds episodes we watched um sex lives of college girls um which is i think it's on hbo and um it's created by Mindy Kaling and it's like four freshmen. Uh, and one of them is Timothee Chalamet's sister. Um, and I didn't recognize the other two, but basically it's like, you know, a college, they go to this, you know, fancy Essex college in Vermont. Um, it, some of it was shot in Vassar. Uh, and it's just a kind of very fun, uh, yeah, it's just a fun show and it's very funny and like, uh, yeah, it's good. I'm just very excited about Mindy Kaling's career right now because she did Never Have I Ever, which was loosely based on her life in high school. And this one is loosely based on what seems to be her life in college where, um, you know, there's uh, there's the main character, Bella, is trying to get on the Catullin, which is the comedy magazine or whatever, and it's this total boys club, or you know. Um, Does it and, take place now, or is it, like, taking place when she would have been there? It's now, yeah. Okay. So it's it's all, yeah, yeah. But it, you can sort of see that it's, like, Anyway, and like she's not in it at all, but like I'm like I'm loving the Mindy like creating and like helping write these new shows that have I don't know that are like hilarious in the way that she's always been hilarious, but are also just like it's rooted in the biographical enough to be kind of interesting in that way. But it's just like I don't even really know what I'm trying to say, but it's been very fun uh and that show is very fun and it's got a lot of good uh good college stuff and a lot of great to remember that we're not in college anymore um what a terrible my college is gone i'm super (laughs) i I couldn't go back if i wanted to (laughs) oh man uh 
Yeah. No, I just, yeah, I, I, it's very short. It's like 10 ish episodes. Um, yeah, highly recommend it. Sex Lives of College Girls. Do nice. it to it. I will check it out. Jack, I am asking you what you are reading or watching or listening to. And I'm doing so with my new mic. So the question is, is imbued with extra profundity and weight. I am more inclined to answer than ever before. Good. <laughs> good. That was the hope. It sounds so crisp and good. Uh, yeah. So I am going to read more this year. I read some last year, but probably less than I have maybe ever in a year since I learned how to read. Um, still read a few books, but like way, way down. As an aside, probably what the amount that you read last year was the amount that I read on my very best voracious year. No, no. I think it's probably true. I highly doubt that. I didn't read much last year. And <laughs> of what I did read, as I've mentioned before, the vast majority were cat-based mystery stories. Um, <laughs> but this year is starting off with a bang. One of my requested Christmas gifts was in fact gifted to me. And it is the book Lakota America, A New History of Indigenous Power. Oh, wow. It's a big, thick book, and I'm excited to read it. I've started it. And I can't wait to read all the rest of it. I'm enjoying it. It's getting my new year reading off to a, a good start. But I'm not just reading or perhaps even yet primarily reading because I'm still <laughs> not reading a whole lot. Uh, and so I saw a really good movie called Shadow in the Cloud. Whoa. Um, basically, a young woman is trying to get transport on a military aircraft in World War II era New Zealand. And she manages to get on the plane, but a bunch of sexism ensues, and there might be some kind of creature wreaking havoc on the plane itself, in addition to enemy planes in the area. And it is just an incredible feminist movie that pretty artfully handles a lot of different stuff. And it's pretty stylish. It's got a nice synthy soundtrack. The CG is maybe not amazing all the time, but it's okay. And uh, yeah, it's just a cool little movie. And I think some of the images it ends on are pretty great. Uh, without spoilers for stuff that happens, it features the, the main woman character basically uh, doing all the stuff that a male action hero does and saying all the things that a male action hero would say the way that they say them to women characters, but to the dudes. Um, <laughs> nice. And then there's a pretty profound ending, like visual. Wow. So check it out. Shadow in the Cloud. It's on Hulu right now. And yeah, that's my other recommendation. Shadow in the Cloud and Lakota America. A New History of Indigenous Power.
Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. Mm-hmm.